I'm TJ Manisterski and welcome to our panel. We're going to discuss balancing development with winning. I'm excited to bring together a diverse panel of experts, providing access to some top minds in player development and team performance. This also includes you, our participants. There are a lot of people on this Zoom call here tonight that have a lot of experience and uh, can add a lot of value. So we're fortunate to be joined by everyone. We're hoping to provide a structure here that gives everybody a voice. And there's a few things that I hope you all take away from this event. First, we want to really understand the tension involved with supporting the individual development of our athletes with team performance. Hope you take away some actionable ideas on how to approach this balance and connect with someone new so you can add to your professional and sport network. The format will do some quick introductions of our panelists followed by a discussion with them, which should take us to about 40 minutes. And then we'll do a breakout groups. It will be assigned randomly and we'll cover that when we get there. And that'll be 20 minutes. And then we'll come back and it'll be overtime. So it'll just be question and answer and uh, we'll open it up for yeah, discussion there. So uh, just a few housekeeping items. Please put yourself on mute if you haven't already. <laughs> Thank you, right on cue. That's exactly it. Uh, so please do that. If you're like my house, you could have some, some kids crying or who knows what can happen. So uh, appreciate that. And full disclosure that this is being recorded and I'm going to make it available to subscribers of the Coaching Project newsletter. So let's have a respectful and authentic conversation. Uh, nobody has all the answers and we're all here because we have open minds and, and we love this stuff. So let's remember also to have some fun. So here we go with the introductions. Uh, Matt, can you start us off? Absolutely. Hey, everybody. Uh, Matt Deschamps. I'm uh, the associate head coach uh, with the Chicago Steel uh, in the USHL. Um, I've been here for this is going on part of my second season. And uh, prior to that, I coached uh, college hockey and then I also coached over in Europe. All right. Hey, everyone. My name is Alyssa Gillardi. Uh, I work for the Carolina Hurricanes organization and youth hockey development and coach with the Carolina Junior Hurricanes uh, girls program and player development. I played at Cornell University a few years with the women's national team and a few years in the women's pro leagues and look forward to uh, chatting with you all here tonight. Hi, everyone. Adam Naylor. Um, I'm based out of the Boston area. Um, as someone said to me the other year, I'm kind of a I'm a free agent when it comes to the mental emotional side of player development and coaching up leaders. Um, and that basically means I'm good at raising my hand for stuff. I, I spent quite a long time as faculty at Boston University and at the same time um, conducting applied practice where I was really doing a lot of consulting, whether it be USA hockey coach education through consulting with college and young professional teams. Um, that's a bit my background, a little bit of anything and everything that has to do with the mental emotional side. I tend to step in it. So that's where I'm at. Uh, to piggyback on Adam's uh, point here, I'm, uh, I'm Ashwin Patel. I'm also a mental performance consultant. Uh, I work primarily with the Guelph Storm of the Ontario Hockey League and the Vancouver Canucks uh, organization, primarily working with their Utica Comets team. And uh, over the past year, also had the opportunity to be able to work with Hockey Canada with their U17 team. Uh, otherwise, I'm a professor at Humber College in Toronto, Ontario. I'm Kenny Rausch. I'm the director of youth hockey for USA Hockey, uh, located in Colorado Springs. Prior to doing this, this is year 12 of doing that. 
Uh, I played my college hockey in a year of college baseball at Boston University, and I coached college hockey for 14 years prior to my stint at USA Hockey. Hi, I'm Dave Starman. I've been coaching for 34 years now, spent the last 25 with USA Hockey in the coaching education program. I've been an NHL scout for 11 seasons with Toronto, Montreal, and most recently with NHL Seattle in their opening year, uh, currently coaching U15 AAA here on Long Island, and I've coached from 8U up through the International and American Hockey League as an assistant. Good morning, good evening, everybody. I'm Ted Soikinen. I'm currently located in Yaroslavl, uh, Russia, and uh, I am the director of the player development here for our club from uh, our KHL all the way down to our under six team. And I primarily work as a skills coach with our KHL, MHLA, and our MHLB players. Look forward to speaking with you guys tonight. My name is Wes Wolf. Uh, I'm an assistant coach for the Erie Otters in the Ontario Hockey League. Been in that role for five years now. Um, Hockey Canada High Performance One certified coach and currently working on my certified skills instructor certification as well. Uh, pretty extensive background in, in coaching started really young and uh, at the grassroots level, everything from house league uh, 6U up through U18 AAA and then pretty much all levels of junior hockey. So really happy to join everybody tonight. Awesome. I love this panel. There's a lot to offer here, but I do want to make a special recognition to Ted anybody who's doing the math in Yaroslava, Russia, it is 3.05 a.m. So uh, some, you know, stick taps, snaps, props, whatever for Ted for joining us today. And, but he had to be here. It was his tweet that, that spawned this conversation. So he had no choice, but uh, here we go. First question directed at Dr. Naylor and Dr. Patel. The question is how does the tension between development and winning show up in the decision-making of coaches? Ash, that's all you, buddy, man. You know, I want to see what you go, and then I get to clean up the mess if it's a mess or, you know, <laughs> Ted, Ted's lively and awake, so we, I can ask Ted to clean things up. So where are you headed, buddy? I think it just is. It's, it's a challenge, and I think what I find just with the, the experiences that I've had is that not everybody's rowing the boat in the same direction. And there's direction oftentimes from either an ownership group, uh, even if you've got owners, if you've got three or four owners that might be going in a different direction. Uh, and so there's mixed messaging sometimes that coaches experience. Like we want you to develop our players, but we also want you to win. And then when you start playing some of the younger players and then all of a sudden, uh, maybe they're not performing and you're not getting the outcomes from the winning side that you want, then there's the, the feedback and the net, you know, the, the, the comments from the ownership group, the general manager, and then all of a sudden the coach struggles with those type of decisions. For me, just in my role as a like, supporter from either a culture standpoint, from, from the mental side of it, coaches understand those challenges and what they can control and what they can't. So I do think there is a tension that is there. Um, and it, you know, for, for me, it, it first came out uh, in the OHL during the trade deadline where there was a lot of on uh, ability to be able to support the players and, you know, let them know that we're there for development, but then also giving them be traded 
to upgrade to try to go for a championship. And so that's some of the challenges that at least I've experienced. And then the coach, you know, is struggling communication with both the players and uh, scouts, et cetera. I think my internet might be stable, Adam. So why don't you take over while I check out one thing? Okay, I get to pick up the, the internet breaking in and out. Um, TJ, I think I'm actually going to start in response to your question, because you asked, how does this affect coaches and coach decision-making in some ways? And I don't know if you, you kind of layered in there, why is it challenging? Like that's where my head goes a little bit. And I guess even as we started this call and the discussion on it, probably about a week or so ago, what struck me is this conversation continues, right? I know Kenny has a lot of thoughts on this. I haven't chatted with him. This, some of this is old news, right? Like we know focusing on player development actually leads to winning and being able to be patient with it actually gets you to where you're supposed to go. So I think a really critical note of what you're saying, TJ, is the answers are sort of, I don't want to say obvious, but there's been tons of research on this, but our ability as coaches and leaders to execute it is deceptively difficult, right? I used to, I said it with a team I was working with years ago, you know, shiny object syndrome's a thing, right? I have watched coaches and peers, all of a sudden the score goes sideways and they start shortening the bench. And all they end up with is a tired bunch of superstars that lose the game. But that was the human move. So I think it's deceptively tough and something we're, we're always dealing with. I guess the other piece I throw out here, and, and I'd be curious to have people organize my thoughts because anyone knows I can go about 15 different directions on the science and the history of all this. But I think there's this other dilemma we run into is we see player development in winning as an either or phenomenon. In, in some ways, that's absolutely nuts if we think about it. And I, I think there's a story I might have shared with you, TJ, at one point, but I, I'll never forget. I was standing, um, actually a hockey squad a handful of years ago. And whenever I work with a team, I always layer a couple themes for the season, like something we're going to center around when it comes to the mental game. And that year, one of my themes was if we're learning, we succeeded. If we're better at the end of the season, we succeeded. And I said that, and there's a point to this story where, you know, a bunch of, you know, adolescent young men, I'm going to throw young men under the bus, you know, because Alyssa, all young women are far smarter, smarter than young men. Let's just be clear on this. And the guys were like, look at me, go, no, no, no. We've got to win national championship, bean pot, hockey. That's how we succeeded. And I said, again, if we're better at the end of the season than the beginning, we succeeded. But still, everyone's struggling with that idea, right? Because of the shiny objects. And God bless them, their captain, who is right now wearing a letter in the NHL, stood up in the room. He said, hey, everyone, if we're better at the end of the season than we are at the beginning, we want everything we're supposed to win. Whew. But that's tough for us to remember. Is if we're getting better, we're winning what we're supposed to win. It doesn't have to be an either or phenomenon. And yes, as Ashwin puts it, yeah, at the end of the season, you probably have to shorten your bench at a certain level. Right. If you're an American Hockey League coach, you probably, you know, if you read Red Gendron's books years ago, you probably got to develop guys and forget about winning sometimes because your job's to make the NHL club better. But ultimately, development and winning is not an either or phenomenon. I think we get stuck in that way too much and it leads to some really um, foolhardy decisions, frankly, on the game day decisions. That's my two cents, TJ. So, Adam, in your article, The Coach's Dilemma, that everybody 
here tonight should have had access to because it was it was there to download on the, the page to, to sign up. And if not, I can if anybody wants it, I can get to them. You present a model where where it's almost like a spectrum where when you start in the early ages of youth hockey at the beginning, it, it shows this full 100% development. And then as you get all the way to the other end of professional sports, it becomes 100% winning. Now, what, what I'm hearing you say, though, is, you know, maybe that's not totally accurate and that the development piece at the highest level still can be a competitive advantage and a strategy to win. I guess I'll throw a couple thoughts in here. And, and A, thank you for making me reread something I wrote in 2006. And, and thank God it, it still is mod reasonably relevant today. So a couple thoughts, right? I'll give you some premises behind how I ended up starting to write this, where A, I was invited to write for the Journal of Education. And at that time, in all the clinics I was doing, I was getting the questions, when, do, when should I shorten the bench? One. And when does someone have to specialize? And I was getting those questions from Mike coaches all the way through, you know, high school ages. And I'm like, how do I help people find what the science is and the answer? So part of it's a little bit of a decision-making model, because frankly, if we look at a youth sport, and I'd be really curious to see what other people are thinking. Those decisions happen way earlier than they have to, right? We take that bait on winning. And one thing that really stood out is even though there's that pressure in the leagues and, and coaches still wanting to win, it's not necessary until around the age 13, 14. Another thing I wanted to put out here, and again, this is kind of a helping coaches double check themselves as they give feedback piece. It's not that development doesn't happen at the age 25. So this is where I get a little geeky as well. So it made me harken back to my, my doctoral dissertation where, and we know this, if we're watching pro sports, it would appear interviewing and talking to players coaches become basically managers, right? Their focus is on winning and players are learning in other ways. And I'll never forget it. Um, and the story I'll tell, and he's comfortable with me saying it, Robert Cron, who's actually part of Seattle, Dave, now, um, I think he's in the scouting. He, he was actually the inspiration for my dissertation. He and I had many a nice conversation. I remember him telling me he was about 36, 37, near the end of his NHL career. And the, the, you know, I, I'm willing to say this on tape. He said, I'm not sure I learned much from Paul Maurice because Paul was like, half his age at that time, right? If we go way back into around 2000, he said, but I learn every day because between shifts, I stare out on the ice. I go, what can I steal from someone else? So it's not that learning ever stops. It's the role of the coach evolves and changes as well, TJ. So I think I want to put that out there. The best athletes I'd worked, I worked with will tell you if I'm not learning, it means my career is about to end. And that's really, I think, a critical piece. Ashwin, one thing that comes up sometimes, I don't know if it's in the media or in just coaching circles, is winning is also development. So when you're talking about the Vancouver Canucks organization and Utica specifically, how does that factor into this conversation? Like does winning, where does winning factor into the development at that level? I think understanding the process of getting better. I think that's the, the, the big challenge is like, what are the habits that you're creating at, in Utica that can then for translate well into playing for Vancouver. And that's the reality. What are some of the challenges? So having good leaders, uh, you, know, you know, players that are AHL veterans that understand that have been up and down that recognize some of those key things. So yes, having a successful organization, but again, how you define it, wanting having success and getting playoff reps 
I mean, you, you hear a, a bunch of organizations that have talked about that. I know Toronto talked about that, how beneficial that was for the Marlies having that run a couple of years ago. Uh, here, like, again, Cleveland talking about that as well. Like those things can be really beneficial for understanding what are the things that we can be doing on a day-to-day -day basis to get better that can also allow us to kind of prepare ourselves for the eventuality of playing in the NHL and realizing how challenging that is, right? That gap between making it uh, as a AHL player and a quad player and supporting, the, uh, supporting those players in that process. Alyssa, in your experience with the youth hockey with the Junior Hurricanes, have you felt any tension there between the development and winning working with, with your players? You know what, we're pretty fortunate. And I think, you know, some silver linings to COVID, right? We didn't play as many games as we thought. So a lot of the focus became shifting to practices, shifting to skill development that we maybe wouldn't have had time or maybe we just wouldn't have prioritized, right? So it kind of forced our hand a little bit. But I think, uh, you know, to us, like we're not in a league. It's all kind of exhibition games until, you know, you districts and then you hope you go to nationals. So I personally like that model just because, again, it gives us the ability like to roll all our lines, to roll all our D pairs, put them in power play, put them in penalty kill and put them in all these situations. Um, so they have experiences. And then, you know, when we go to some games that matter, which is, you know, one or two weekends, um, you know, then we can make some decisions there. But, um, you know, it's been actually really great to, to not have to worry about our record, really, um, which I know is probably more on the youth hockey side than, um, some of the, the higher levels, but, you know, it's been a great balance for us. So Kenny, with your lens of the entire country through USA hockey, certainly this has been a different year and hopefully there's been a lot of places like Alyssa's talking of taking advantage of that. I've seen some of that even in new England, you know, some prep schools getting creative. Like I saw today, there's one that's doing a, kind of a, an extended three on three tournament with, with their team and, and doing some different things. But uh, I'm, I would like to hear from you where you see this, this going awry. So when, when coaches do make decisions that put winning ahead of development, particularly at the younger ages, uh, you know, before you start specializing. So like, let's say before we get to the USA uh, under 17 team what's the impact on the players uh, I, I think it's a deterrent to just even say at the younger ages because even at 14 15 16 17 18 we don't know what most players are going to become right it's a long-term developing sport so if we're not giving every kid the same opportunity at 16 years old it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy Right. And, and if winning truly did mean development, wouldn't it make sense to say then that every team that won 16 U tier ones, every one of those players would advance to junior, junior hockey and college hockey and pro hockey. Right. You know, to take ashes, you know, when you talk about the development of an AHL team making a playoff run and becoming successful, that's team development. It's not individual development. Otherwise, every one of those kids or players would make the NHL. That doesn't happen. Right. So as youth hockey coaches, and I don't care what level you coach, you need to create a player centered environment for your players and put them at the forefront of everything. Winning is just a bonus. Right. At the end of the day, 
National Hockey League scouts and GMs aren't drafting a kid in the first round because he played on a good 14U team. Matter of fact, they don't even care what team he played on, right? So the player-centered environment becomes a huge piece. And it's, it's always my auspices is if you pick a kid on your team, play him or play her, right? Because they all have a chance to develop. Um, earlier this year, we had I had Chris Kunitz on one of my uh, coaching clinics that we had. And I was actually giving a presentation on LTAD. And I'm like, this is absolute gold, right? I got a guy who was a 21-year-old freshman, played at Ferris State, didn't play on the best teams growing up, right? Gets to the National Hockey League and he self-professes. He goes, I didn't become a regular in the National Hockey League till I was 26 years old, right? And I, in front of the whole group, I'm like, well, why didn't you go to college at 18? No one wanted me. I wasn't good enough, right? Played on a, on a, on a good, decent midget team in Saskatchewan, wasn't the best team, but he played, right? He went to Ferris State and played a ton. At the end of three years, signed a pro contract, Again, at 25, 26, becomes regular, rides shotgun with Sydney for a couple of years. And I think he's, what, won four or five cups, right? I played on the best team in college hockey. I won a national championship, right? I watched a lot of hockey because I didn't play as much as the other guys, right? So my development was thwarted. I'm not going to complain. I had a great experience. But for a development purpose, because the bench was shortened a lot, and at that level, it's okay to because you're being paid to win and lose games, right? At the youth level, we're being, some coaches are being paid, but in the end of the day, you're being paid to develop every individual player that's under your control. We even see it at our level, you know, at, at the USHL, we've had, we've had players that, uh, you know, are, are in the fourth year of their, um, here in the USHL and, and, you know, development over time, you don't know if you know that's gonna they're really gonna hit their stride in year one year two sometimes it could be four but when they do um the impacts and the strides that they can make it's it's incredible so um you have to have a development first mindset when when you're um when you're trying to build your team and then you're trying to you know you're trying to manage your team and I can, i'll piggyback on that maddie and i can tell you from a coaching perspective it becomes a lot more fun, right? Because you don't feel the pressure. You don't, you, you know, you go to sleep at night feeling good about yourself because you're doing what's right by the athletes, right? I, I coached college hockey for 14 years and it was mostly about winning, right? I, Adam's heard me say this, Starman's heard me say this. I think Maddie's heard me say this. I think I'm a really good hockey coach now because I don't care about winning. And the funny part is, is our youth hockey teams, whether it be a 14U, a 12U, high school teams, we win more than we lose, right? But it's not because we shorten the bench or we play certain systems or whatever it may be because every day we just go into trying to make our players better every day and make the players better every day. Your team's going to become better every day. Yeah. When you, you, when you care more about the kids than you do about winning, you end up winning. And I think too, like starting with the end in mind, like we sat down with all our kids age 15 to 17 and what did they want to get out of the season? Every single one said, I want to get better. It wasn't, I want to win nationals. It wasn't anything tied to results. It was like, I want to get better individually and we want to get better as a team. So like, that's the kids telling you what they want. And then, you know, I think, you know, as a staff too, we just thought, said like, if at the end of the year, kids said, 
my coaches let me make mistakes and learn from them and try again, then that was, that was the win to us. Um, again, we don't really care what our record is, but if we can say we help prepare kids for the next level, whatever that may be, um, that that's what we're looking for. And, and we can't forget the dirty F word fun, right? We, we, as youth hockey coaches sometimes think this is such a serious game and we gotta, we gotta focus. We gotta concentrate. We gotta work hard right? Kid scores a goal and he's celebrating too much. We have a tendency to jump all over them and yell. Yet I watched the World Series and Brandon Phillips has a pinch hit walk-off single. He's doing airplanes in the outfield, right? If one of our players did that after scoring a goal, we'd go bananas, right? In the interview, I mean, he's like, I just got caught up in the moment and I'm having fun. This is the World Series, a grown man, right? But we're going to get mad at a 13-year-old for doing that. So Kenny and Matt and uh, Alyssa, like, so what do you do then as coaches with the focus then on development? So what are like kind of the daily behaviors that you engage in to let the players know that we care about your development and whatever that may be? I know Kenny, you mentioned like individually understanding their respective goals. I'd, I'd love to kind of hear that. Then what are some actionable behaviors that you do? Yeah, communication is number one. No, go ahead, Matty. Yeah, go ahead, Matty. You guys, don't, you guys do such a good job. I'll let you lead. Communication is number one is having a plan for the kids, having them invested in the plan and being upfront with your communication and having it be positive. So they're bought into, you know, the vision that, that, that we have for them, that they have for themselves. And, you know, we talk about it all the time. You, you need to be looking through a telescope, not a microscope. And I think too, just like that, those conversations too, and that communication around loving the process, right? Like growth mindset is obviously such a, a buzz term right now, but getting kids to fall in love with the process of just getting better at one little thing every day. We talk, you know, all the time, like get 1% better every single day. And so it's putting that a little bit of the onus on the players too, that they write down, you know, what am I focusing on today or things like that. And and that kind of just becomes part of the culture and the environment. And, and it, yeah, like Matt said, it's the responsibilities on them too to, to commit to those things. Alyssa, I think you make a great point because one of the things that I've, I've always tried to do with our younger players, and I learned it at the pro level, but one of the things that I've always tried to do with our younger players, and I, like I said, I have you got U15s this year. I tell the guys, I said, don't worry about who's better than you and don't worry about who's getting talked to by who and don't uh, drown out the white noise you got two focuses in your day. Your number one is figure out who's ahead of you on the depth chart and challenge yourself to see if you can get past them with your own skill development. Number two is be better than you were the day before. Like if you live by those two simple credos, you got a pretty good chance of becoming a much better player. Obviously communicate with your coaches, obviously bear down and do all the small things that you need to, but figure out who's ahead of you and try to get past them. And number two, make yourself better. And the thought, the quote we just heard about, between shifts, I sit and watch everybody else play and try to see what I can steal in my game. How many of our players can we honestly say come off the ice and then start watching the game as opposed to anything else, losing their focus, thinking about something else, maybe talking to a teammate about something that's not necessarily game-related. I, I love that quote. I'm going to hang it up in our locker room because I, I think that really hits home. You can learn so much from watching other players. It's the number one question I ask players when I'm broadcasting the World Junior Championships. Hey, who have, on this team have you picked up something from that you can add to your game? And their answers over 13 years have been remarkable. And that's including Austin Matthews and Ryan Larkin and Jack Eichel and Ryan McDonough. It, some of those answers have been awesome. 
So it's a great point, Star. And, you know, one of the things we like to say a lot is, you know, we have a country full of kids and parents who want to win the race to the wrong finish line, right? They want to be awesome. They want to be on the best 14U team or win the Quebec tournament or whatever it may be, instead of what is the finish line, right? It's to be the best you can be at the end of the day. And hopefully the end of the day on the, on the men's side is playing in the National Hockey League. And on the women's side is playing on the, the women's uh, national team and in the NWHL now. Right. So do you want to be the best 26 year old or do you want to top out at 15 years old? Right. And I just saw a question in the chat room about, you know, thoughts on roster sizes. Right. If you want to win games, have a bigger roster because you're going to have more rested players. You're going to play fast. You're going to make less decisions, less trouble. You want to develop more players, have smaller roster sizes because you can, kids are going to play more. The more you play, the more you develop. I mean, it, it, again, going back to an older day and some of the, you know, Starman and some of these guys and, and Maddie. I never played on a team with four lines until I got to college, right? It's just youth hockey. We had two and a half lines all the time and you played every other shift. And it's maybe probably Ted, I don't know. You can talk about that at the, you know, you, 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 you're seeing six year olds up to 36 year olds right now. And right. You can see the difference, right? Kids need to play to develop. Well, it's fun because like you're, like you mentioned there, Kenny, is that I do see like the six year olds, Oh, on a daily basis. Then we also have our KHL guys that are getting paid millions. Um, and it's funny is because I, when we're starting to look at it, how everybody's talking about communication and having fun and, you know, having development each and every day, I think the biggest thing for any kind of club organization that you have and, and the coaches within it is that it has to be detailed out. What are you, what are you expecting as a, as an organization, as a coach to see every single day, what is your age group and what do you guys want to achieve say per week, per month, them per year so that they can join up to that next level and be honest with yourselves. And as, as we get up into our, into our upper ages. So we have our guys that are joining the junior ranks that are 16 years old. And our main priority is we have to get them onto the KHL team because our president doesn't want to spend as much money as everybody else. So he wants the cheapest roster as possible, but at the same time, win. So I think right now we are averaging, TJ, we talked the other night, I think our average age of our KHL team is 22 years old and we're third in the league in points. And our junior team, we're sitting there at the top levels like the USHL and the CHL, we're around 17 years old and we're second in the whole league with uh, everything. And what it all boils down to is actually trying to get to know the players, actually know what their motivations are and understand that each and every day that it's not going to be their best, just like it's not going to be our best, but we're always going to try to go for it. And the best part about it is sometimes it's not even to talk to them about hockey. It's about talking about life because then you actually get to know them a little bit more. And being where I'm at now, I'm born in the States, living in Russia. You know, we have this huge cultural difference. Plus we have this huge communication barrier, but you can sit down there and you can talk. And when they start to see that you're trying to get to know who they are, they really try to open up to you and they'll give you even more depth about themselves that you can actually use to your advantage later on when you want them to develop. And it's always going to be different too. A, a six-year-old is going to have different priorities than an 18-year-old who's going to have different priorities than he's a 36-year-old. But at the same time, as a coach, you have to take your ego, put it into the box and let them tell you and help them direct you towards what you have. And then at the same time, be a little bit of a chemist and camouflage what your intentions are rolled into what they want. So it's always a mix and match all the time. So I had a planned question here, but Victor in the chat 
asked it way better than I was going to. So I'm just going to read Victor's question. I'm going to throw it at, at Wes, uh, Wes Wolf from the Erie Otters here. So uh, assuming the coach is player centric, uh, how do you align the interests of ownership, the OHL? And I think we can also loop in uh, Matt and Ted on this too. Uh, OHL, KHL, USHL. Uh, do these teams need to win in order to remain viable entities? Examples drives ticket sales, merchandise sales, etc. And you know, in terms of coaches' hands possibly being tied, how does that fit together in Erie? Well, I, I think one we're we're very fortunate in the Erie to have an owner um, whose values very much align with the staff in terms of what our definition of of winning is, and I think. It's important because Al, Al, uh, Alyssa brought up loving the process and like I think championship meetings and championship practice and championship planning and you know championship pre-scouts still don't guarantee you win the championship um, but you definitely don't if if you don't do those things and I think that's sort of what the winning process is but I, I think you know there's a difference between positive score outcomes and winning. And that distinction isn't necessarily important to your players all the time um, or as a team, but I think as a staff, including your ownership in the conversation about what your definition of winning is, is really important. And I think Adam, you know, talked about uh, winning and development, not being a binary decision where you have to choose one or the other um, I think, you know, it's really important at the beginning of the year that you have an internal discussion about your definition of winning. And it's kind of like, what is your goal and, and what should the goal be? So if the goal is to have more positive score outcomes, I, I think there's so much more behind the scenes that goes into that, you know, whether it is um, the time that you allocate to player development, the time that you allocate to holistic development, where, you know, you're creating better people, you know, the player centered approach that, that Kenny kind of touched on is, is extremely important because at the end of the day, all of our athletes are people first and they're not capable, you know, of accomplishing what we want in terms of the outcome um, until we develop that person first. So I think my last thought on it is, um, you know, modern coaching requires more versatility um, than, than ever before, you know, being a bench coach, you still need to be well-versed in, in analytics and you need to know skill development and, and above and beyond all of that, um, you need to know your people first, you're a people manager and you need to know how to have those conversa conversations and develop relationships uh, with your players. So I think aligning everybody in the organization is about, you know, evoking the right imagery and the definition of, of what winning really is. TJ, I'm going to pipe in really quickly with thought because Wes mentioned something. I heard it also from both Matt and Kenny, and I guess I th thought I want to throw out there. This is people interested in coaching, right? And a thought I might throw out there is we got to be careful of the bait we take, right? So we may have these pressures to win because that is the goal, right? You, you never play a game, go, I hope I lose. That's okay. But now when we talk about management and whatnot, and, and this is me getting psyche, so I'll be really curious if, if Ash wants to kick in here. As coaches, we get stressed and we can take the wrong bait. In the example I'll give, and it, it, it makes, makes me think of a handful of years back, I remember working with a squad where 
if they were losing the game with say 10 minutes to go, they'd start for God's sakes, double, triple shifting their superstar. And I can tell you, I had access to all the analytics at that time with ice time on ice. I can tell you when their superstar got 28 minutes of ice, they always lost. The, but the coach was taking the bait going superstar. This, this person can score like crazy. And it was amazing. I sat down at the end of the season. I pulled on like every time you gave them 28 minutes, you thought you were trying to win the game and you always lost the game. And Kenny alluded to it earlier, right? <laughs> I don't care how good you are. You want a bunch of fresh legs there, but it was amazing. That was the bait we can take as coaches, right? The bait of shortening the bench when we don't need to the bait of, is this really chips chips or downtime? And I think we have to acknowledge that's the stress. That's why we have to be clear on our philosophy, right? So say an owner says, hey, our goal is to win this season. You go, absolutely it is. And then you trust your philosophy. That's why these conversations are important so we can ingrain them deep enough so you don't take the bait too soon to make an unfortunate decision because that's what humans do. Under stress, we make bad decisions, even a coach. Well, I like to tee Ted up on one here because we had this conversation the other day and how some organizations talk about how, you know, we're talking about this approach to development. How does it align with ownership? But in your organization, you rely on the development in terms of creating a pipeline of players. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, like I can joke about it, about saying that he wants to be, you know, cheap with spending the money on the players at, at the professional level. And it makes sense, you know, because we are a European club and we have our own academy from the under sixes all the way up. It's just like most European clubs do. Um, but our president, he's very, very adamant all the time about making sure that we have enough kids from Yaroslava playing in the top main team, which is, which is a tough job, but at the same time, he takes the pressure off of all of our youth coaches. So all of our youth coaches, we have Moscow championships, we have Gazprom championships, everything that goes on here. And he's just like, it doesn't matter what you guys do. You win, you lose, it does not matter. But the, the number of players has to stay the same when they, when they jump up to the next le uh, level next year and the next level after that. And when they hit our MHLB, which would be our, our under 18 level, he goes, this is when it, the winning is going to start to take a little bit more of a priority because then you're going to get sponsorship monies and everything else that are popping in. But at the same time, the kids that we do take into those levels, he wants to see them either within our MHLA, our VHL, which is our second league team here, or our KHL level. He wants to be able to see a kind of pipeline that comes in. Plus, at the end of the day, he wants to be able to sell our players to a different team, sell their transfer cards, so we actually make money back as a club. So everything gets wrapped up into a ball. So the more that we can create our players at the at the higher level, the more money the club actually makes at the end of the day, plus the, the better the winning percentages are for the main teams with uh, what we have. But for most part of with him is that he invests money in making sure that the coaches have education. He invests money in making sure that we have like myself coming in here in a different area. We have uh, psychologists, we have, you know, strength and conditioning coaches. So one guy doesn't do everything for that team. So there's all kinds of different people I was working around. And I think that's very vital too, because the stress is on one coach to do everything. At the end of the day, he actually does nothing. Instead of just spreading the wealth and then being able to collect it all together again at the end of the day and talk about it. 
I think it's a really important distinction, like to use an analogy, I, I think I'm borrowing this one from, from John Gordon, but the whole point is like what Ted is saying is focusing on, on the root, not the fruit, right? Like if you're trying to, to grow a, a, a tree that, that's going to have fruit for you. And I think for us, you know, or an owner, it may be being financially viable. That's, that's the fruit of the labor, but you, in order to get there, you need to focus on the root and the, the root of those things um, from a coaching development standpoint is, as he mentioned, the education, professional development, um, you know, doing things that are divergent from just coaching your team. But I think in the, um, in the context of player development, you know, you can be a lot more divergent on, on nurturing the root. It's not just skills, hockey skills, or, or whatever the sport is, you know, it's, it's life skills. And um, I think, you know, it may not necessarily be apparent where those connections are made, but if you're improving, you know, self-awareness and you're improving accountability and decision-making skills, um, things that are going to be important for developing good people, whether they continue playing sports or not, is going to make them a better athlete and in turn going to give you, you know, a, a better chance at winning. That's great stuff. And we have a lot of really good questions in the chat. So we will hold on to those for overtime and we're going to get into our breakout groups. So for those of you, I'm giving you a heads up that you may want to throw on your camera when you get into your breakout groups, if you feel like participating. Um, we have a lot of people on this call that I know personally and others that I just know somehow, but maybe not personally. And there's a ton of knowledge and people with a lot of things to offer and i'm really excited about the the randomness to how these breakouts work out and who you may end up with and the serendipitous connections and knowledge we'll get i'm going to suggest a structure which is when you get into your breakout group that you introduce yourself where you're from what your role is in hockey at this point or in sport you might not be a hockey person um, and that could be anything, right? You could be a parent, you could be a coach, you could be uh, anything and just get to know each other a little bit. And then express your biggest struggle or questions that you, you have in this area. And then the role of the rest of the people in the group would be to be supportive and to suggest ideas, some actionable ideas that you can take away from this and, and try to hopefully overcome any struggle or tension you're feeling. Now you're all grown ups, so you don't have to take that advice. You can talk about anything you want, but that's my suggestion. I'll throw that in the chat. So um, I've been on these breakouts before. And the reason the structure is because sometimes you sit on these breakouts and everybody stares at each other and you don't know what to say. So I'm gonna give you something to follow if you need it. Wes Wolf is, is the Zoom master and he's gonna, he's gonna push us all into breakouts for 20 minutes. And then we're only going to be two minutes over when we get back. It's unbelievable. So I think we're, everybody's filtering back into the big room here. That was terrific. Uh, Wes bounced me around to a few different rooms. So I was able to, to kind of listen to a few different things and the conversations were terrific. And uh, at this point, you were at an hour and that's what was advertised. So don't feel guilty if you're going to log off, but this is, we're in overtime question and answer we have some questions in the chat that we will get to you know i'll pose the question certainly the panel is ready to answer 
but this is like the the training wheels are off i am I'm, I'm perfectly fine letting the, the the rails get off the rails a bit here so anybody who wants to speak uh you know get after it but um there's a question here that i want to start with uh any advice for a minor hockey coach on how to communicate a development program to parents I would, uh, I would start this way. It's, it's one of the things that we have tried to do and anywhere I've gone, I've tried to make it a staple. Roushi and I have talked about this a lot. Uh, the conversation of defining winning is paramount. And I have always told our parents and I've always told our organization, to me, I'd much rather hang a bunch of banners at the end of the arena with the names of the players that we've moved on to higher levels than hang banners for silver sticks or anything else. And it goes along the line of what Kenny said. What what race are we trying to win here? You know, nobody, nobody gets together to celebrate the, the 20th anniversary of winning, you know, their 13 U silver stick tournament. It just doesn't happen, but you know, players will get back together again to celebrate their accomplishments. They continue to move on in their careers and to continue to get better. So I think the ability to communicate to your parent group and to your players, and most importantly, you know, as an organizational structure, the focus has to be, on making the players better. And Red Gendron at Maine, I know we brought up his name before, you know, he has said it to me a million times. He said, you know, Dave, the, the reality is the team that gets off the bus with the best players generally wins. So your challenge in coaching a lot of times should be see if you can create a team of the best players. And that's only going to happen if you're drilling down on making them better as opposed to playing your top eight players for half a game to see if you can squeak out a win that three weeks later, nobody's going to remember. And it goes back to what uh, Maddie Deschamps talked about too, is communicating with the players at the youth level. So many of us don't want to talk to the parents, but we have to, right? Will we like it or not? They're part of the, the equation. And, you know, at worst, you better hold at least one parent meeting at the beginning of the year and explain your philosophies, right? This is what we do. Might not be what you're used to seeing or what you're used to experiencing, but we are trying to do everything for your athlete to make them a better person, better athlete, a better hockey player, better lacrosse player, whatever it may be. Right. Because like I said, at the end of like Starman just said, at the end of the day, they take that 13 U silver stick winning team. Not every player on that team is going to advance to the next level or the highest level. And lo and behold, Hopefully someone's a really good baseball player on that team or a football player or a basketball player. We don't know what direction they're going to go. I, I, I want to take sort of just a, a different approach because I, I really think development is still uh, a, a overused buzz term that like, what does getting better mean? I, I, I just, that question that parents constantly want to, they want their kid to develop and get better. And I don't even think that they know the answer. And sometimes, you know, as a, as a coach, it's important to define exactly what getting better is. I, I mean, like, I don't know that it's always necessarily tangible. You can't even say necessarily if a player got better from the start to finish. I, I think naturally, if you're going to play a sport for 12 months, you're going to get better, even if you're trying not to get better. So I, I think that like, it's myopic to just say, we're about development, you know, well, development of what? I think that's really important to define that. And, and uh, I, I love using catchphrases and acronyms, but like the acronym that I like to use for win is what's important now. 
And the acronym for loss is learning opportunities, stay strong. And so I, I think winning, losing, you know, it, it's not about getting better at, at, at playing hockey. It's what, what is getting better? I, I just, I think it's kind of a, a gray area. Wes, I think you make a really good point. And, and here's where I'd like to offer, you know, potentially an answer and, and we can debate this as we want in terms of getting better. When I look at a player, I try to identify at all levels, what does that player do and what can we improve on that player? If that player can't make a 35-foot pass, can we get them to do that by the end of the season? If a defenseman can't cut the net and make a good first pass, can we get that defenseman to do that by the end of the year? I think part of getting better is being able to instill the really important fundamental skills of our game. And it's not necessarily just the skills on the ice, but it's communication skills with their teammates. It's the ability for a 13 or a 14 year old player to go to a coach and say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm not playing a ton and, and I'm having some trouble in this area. How can I get better? If we could teach kids how to have a really meaningful conversation with an adult without being scared to death of, of doing it. I think that's part of improvement. But I also think that if we can build within these players, a stronger grip of their fundamental skills, life skills and hockey skills to the point where they can look in the mirror and feel better about themselves where they can watch a game back and feel better about what their contribution is to the group and their part in it. I think that goes a long way to solving the, the question of what is development. So it might not be creating all-stars, but it's creating people and players with more proficiency than they had coming in to the point that they can take those skills to the next level, whether it be the next level of hockey or the next level of life. Because as we all know, you could teach a lot about life skills through our game. I, Dave? Oh. Um, I'll be really quick here. Sorry, Glad. I want to second what Wes said, and this might help on the idea of, I, I think vague mumbo jumbo is something we always get caught up in in coaching, right? It's process, you name it. And I, I challenge everyone, whenever you say one of those words, ask, what does it look like? What does it sound like? Deceptively difficult, right? How would you know it if you saw it? And what would be the quote that went with it? And I know I ask players that a lot. You tell me you want to work on that. If I'm sitting there watching, how would I know what's happening? What does it look like? What does it sound like? I encourage you to try and drill any buzzwords down to that because at least it gives a target. Yeah, um, that's, that's, these are great points. And from my experience doing the, um, the national development program, we started uh, U14 or 14 so that's 13 up to u18 we would every camp we would ask the kids we would have exit meetings and we'd ask the kids every kid had a file and we'd ask them well what are your dreams for what are you what are your what are your four dreams have them write it down what are your four strengths this last period of time and what are the four things you want to want to do we, we tell, we evaluate the kids, we tell the kids all the time, but if you get the kids to tell you, you can guide them at times, uh, what they want and how they feel, then there, there's a buy-in and it becomes very holistic. And you're teaching them objective setting, no um, win and lose, and you give them a little bit of a game plan. They have certain things that they wanna try for the next month or two months. The rest of it will be add-ons in the game itself, but they'll feel a lot better about themselves and the trust with the coaching staff, and it'll go back to their parents because 
the kids don't really talk to their parents a lot of times and the teachers are too busy. Everything's overloaded. And us as coaches, if you ask the kids and just have them write it down and, uh, you know, you can say, did you achieve that? So uh, it, it, you get a good buy-in with a positive atmosphere. And just on that note, like asking, I think because the original question is about parents, right? I think having a meeting with the parents in the room, and, and this is a really great exercise, I think, to do either now, um, if you're not playing or when you get back, is ask your athletes in front of the parents, not about what they missed about playing, ask them about what they didn't miss. You want to get better? They'll tell you right then what needs to get better uh, from a parent standpoint and a coaching standpoint. During the pandemic, not what did you miss about playing hockey, what, what didn't you miss about playing hockey? That's uh, a great way to develop, I think. Something we've asked in the recruiting process at the collegiate level with parents is more so like just getting them to ask their questions, but doing it with them, right? And just getting the parents involved with the recruiting process and stuff like that. So letting the parents ask questions and seeing how the kid reacts, because we're all doing stuff over Zoom and things like that. But I think the, the other thing too is that, you know, Dave talked about video and the importance of video and learning through video. We asked our players this year, what's important to them. And we're fortunate to have a system that we can set up to clip video for our players and create a system that allows them to see what they want to see. And that's how we set it up. I spent two months setting it up exactly how that. So it filters to the moments in time that are important to our players. And they know that if they see a coach's clip in there now, that they need to set up video with us, right? Like if they're, whether it's one clip, two clips, no clips, like if they don't see any coaches clips, hey, watch your clips. You can see what you want to see and, you know, we're good, right? We'll have our team video sessions, learn from that. But if there is a coach's clip inside that, inside their folder in their system, they know like, hey, I got to set up a, a, a meeting with the coach. And it might be a two minute meeting. Like, hey, we just wanted to review this with you. We've done a lot of scrimmages. We haven't played a game yet. But I think that at, like the asking the question of from your players what they want to see has been really, really valuable to me because it, at a D3 level, we don't have the staff to do time on ice and things like that, right? A lot, some of us have limitations. And that has now saved me two hours of work from clipping all of their shifts and just putting stuff in that they're not going to actually watch because they don't care about it. So we show them their shots. We show the goalies every shot they faced. If a D blocked it, they don't see it. Uh, we show them their missed opportunities on their shot, you know, when they had a chance to shoot. And we'll show them um, their block shots. And then that from there on, it's the moments where they did something well or that we want them to improve on. And those are the coaches' clips. And so, you know, whether that's team play or a skill that we've talked about or worked on, which I think was been, has been really, really, really cool to see from a player's perspective what they care about on video. You know, because I think that's something that we have worked hard on in getting them to engage and watch video more because you can learn a lot from it. So starting from that standpoint here with our program, 
you know, it's, it's gotten a lot more buy-in. And then we do a weekly video session on Tuesday nights from our scrimmage and go over our systems and the things we need them to work on. And then we'll, as we get closer to the games, we'll add in the scout film night. Right. And, you know, it's not too much time. It's about 30 minutes, go through the clips. You know, I think I had 15 clips this week and my assistant had three for power play. So it was 18 clips total took a half an hour. Right. And so it's not too much time. And we asked our captains after, like, was that too much of different things? Too, was it good? What have you? And that was really good. So, Dave, when you talk about video, I, I, like, I value that a lot. And I think that was a really cool way to do it. Awesome. I'd like to just connect this back to the parents. Uh, I actually have a couple of parents of players that have played for me and currently play for me on, on the call. And I would say the first thing, would be if you can take your team to Europe, do it because that helps with your relationship with parents. If you, if you can't do that, uh, we were fortunate enough to do it. But if you can't, I would take, uh, I would suggest taking that ownership approach that Glenn talked about and that Wes talked about. And can you create or facilitate a conversation with your parent to define what success and a win is early in the season and have them articulate that and come to some sort of understanding of what that is maybe you write it down so that later on when it starts to go off the rails you you can refer back to that those ideas and can you can you give the parents a voice like i think it might have been kenny saying that you know you got to have at least one one meeting with them and um, listen i think if you want to get buy-in and ownership and empower them make them part of the process and that would be something that i would be encouraging people and now, granted, I don't, I don't, my level of interaction with parents isn't the same as if I was a youth coach, uh, but that would be something that I would at least try. So if there are any youth coaches that feel free to shoot holes in my theory, because I, I haven't practiced it at your level, but that would be something um, that I would suggest. Bringing uh, this back to the, uh, what Adam Naylor was talking about with uh, both and situations with uh you know, building development, but also with winning. There's a great exercise that I work with teams and you could have your athletes actually do this, get, you know, pieces of easel paper, break it into four quadrants, get into, you know, four or five groups of four or five athletes each, and then ask them to put for, you know, in these four quadrants, there's two upsides. This is the upsides of player development. There's the upsides of winning and literally have them write down what are the advantages, okay, of, developing myself as a player. Secondly, what is the what is the advantages of winning? And basically, after you do that, you look at each side and say, well, what's the downside if I overfocus on one area to the neglect of the other? And then you fill in those bottom four quadrants. And out of that, then the players actually come up with action steps, okay, to see where they can dynamically balance. Because basically, with player development, with winning, it's, it's human behavior. It's an oscillation. It's an energy thing where you're going back and forth all the time with this, right? Coaches go with it. The players go with it. But this allows the players to have more autonomy to see the power of that balance going back and forth so they don't end up putting themselves in, in poles. So, TJ, one last thing I, I want to uh, just mention is uh, Heather Mannix, who's one of our ADM regional managers for USA Hockey, uh, helped in a study with Dr. Amanda Visick, and it's it's called Fun Maps, 
and you guys can Google it and look it up. But basically what they did was they did this huge, huge study and looked into why kids play sports, right? Winning was well down the list. You know, it's not why kids play sports. It's, it's a fun part, right? We all want to win. We all hate to lose, but that's not the main reason why kids play sports, right? It's fun. It's competition. It's the social piece. It's, it's all those other things. And, and, and winning does have a piece, like we said, as you get older, but, and winning is okay. We're not saying winning's not okay, but it's how we go about winning, right? If we do it the right way, like as a youth hockey coach, especially the younger ages, I can, can absolutely control wins and losses by play, overplaying my best players, underplaying my worst players, or not letting my players make decisions. Because if you play 12-year-old hockey and you play 40 games a year and you tell your players, bang it off the glass, get it down deep, right? The other team's going to make mistakes, right? You're going to win some hockey games, but you're not going to make your players better hockey players. That's great. We're going to go to another question. and. Uh, Jordy Williamson, if you could unmute yourself, and I'll let you explain your question. Hi, guys. So uh, I just asked a question in the chat, um, and it's just about how to um, getting your guys' thoughts on communicating to the players on uh, the importance of cross-training or, or taking a break. Um, I played with a lot of guys growing up that were really good and uh, maybe overdid it on the training side of things growing up. and by the time they were 19 or 20, like they don't even want to play hockey anymore. So I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on, on the ideal time to specialize training and um, what, what communication you guys are giving to the, the young players on, on how to take a break or, or do something different. Roushi, I'm going to set you up to finish this one because I know what you're going to say and it's going to be really, really good. So I'll, let, me lay the, let me grease the skids for you on this one. I, I have told a lot of people that one of the, and I talked about it in my breakout groups, one of the best things that has happened since this pandemic has started is that I've noticed that a lot of our young athletes are sleeping more, resting more, and training more away from the rink. And it's, we're probably going to see the results and the benefits of that a, a couple of years down the road. Because with the, a lot of those rinks that got shut down quickly and in New York, I mean, the rinks were shut down for three months. Those kids were doing anything but playing hockey, and they would have been rushing to play spring hockey in 10 minutes once the season ended, plus tryouts, plus all that kind of stuff. So they'd have been on the ice three times a week at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, as opposed to doing other things. And a lot of those kids started to just do other things. Like I said, they started to train. They went to the beach a little bit. They went running. They played tennis. They played whatever they could outdoors because outdoors is the only place you could do anything. And obviously in the spring, there's not a lot of ice that's going to be frozen out there. So I think that was one of the benefits that happened. Kids got more rest. They started to cross train. They started to do more things away from the rink and they started to enjoy themselves a little bit more in a span of time where they should, which Roushi leads into, as you know, getting into play other sports where they can develop some other motor skills, use other muscle groups, which is going to benefit them in the long run as hockey players. Yeah, and it comes down to the you know, big part of it is the physical literacy piece, right? We're trying to create athletes first, hockey players second. But the, the reality is, is the more sports you play, like Dave said, like the, if you put the hockey gear away in April for a little bit and come August, you're going to be excited to get back on the ice. 
and playing other sports has so many other benefits physically and mentally, right? Play other invasion sports like lacrosse, basketball, soccer, right? You, you start to develop spatial awareness and where other players are. We, you know, they call it court sense or field sense. We call it hockey IQ, right? So that's a big piece of it. The physical piece is huge. You do one thing for your whole life, right? You're going to have surgery at some point. I, I like to point to Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods specialized in golf starting at age three, right? Right now, his body is an absolute train wreck. Was he had 10 back surgeries, eight knee surgeries? And, you know, Dr. Adam Naylor would talk about he might have had some mental issues along the way, too, because he was so focused and so specialized and so, uh, you know, driven to be the best that he didn't have that outlet, right? So playing other sports is a huge, huge part of it. And we just had a study done by the National Hockey League. They, they asked every player in the National Hockey League about playing other sports. And lo and behold, almost 90% of them played at least two sports through age 14. And I think it was close to 75 played two sports almost to 18. Right? And look at the National Football League. You're, and, and every year you look at the National Football League draft and 97% of them played multiple sports. Right? And you see that in every, every walk of life, in every elite athlete probably close to 95% of them or more played multiple sports. I'm not going to take Kenny's bait on psychoanalyzing tiger. That just seems like the third rail to step on. Um, but, but to answer Jordan's question, a thought too, is we got to be wary of what we celebrate. Actually, there's a coach I, I know who does a lot of work with college teams. He's like, if my players aren't at the beach in the summer, I'm mad. So he celebrates, right? Oh, great. Good thing you were at the beach. Would you read the beach or whatnot? And then the other thing that is always on my mind on this one, when I got into this space and field in the 90s, the line was, don't put the pro model of sports on kids. I can tell you 30 years later, I'm like, I actually think we maybe should, because I can tell you all of my pro NHL guys, they, they own either a tennis racket, golf clubs, or a fishing rod. The second the season's over, they almost shut it down other than general physical fitness for about two and a half months. So back in the 90s was don't treat the kids like pro athletes. I'm like, look at your pro athletes, right? They're walking out of the gym, grabbing the golf clubs. Look at, you know, many people know him from barstool sports, right? Ryan Whitney, hell of a tennis player. I'll never forget teaching the tennis class at BU. He's like, doc, we got to play again. I've never seen someone cover a court so well for what an oafish looking huge human, like mad physical skills. But again, he was spending his summers with other stuff in his hands. And just being an athlete, doing what Kenny said. And sometimes maybe we have to look closer to our pro athletes these days. They, they actually do do other stuff, you know. I was saying rust is good. When I talk to my kids, you know, I've got, I've got an 11-year-old and an 8-year-old. And, and once their season's done, it's done. You know, I, I try to put their hockey bags uh, in the basement, uh, far in the corner. So, and so it's to a point where they don't even ask and they're on to the next thing. And you know what, when they put, uh, when they put the skates back on, uh, they might suck, but they want to go back and they want more and they want more and I want. So it's, it's one of those things where it, it as a parent or teaching those parents, because those parents are, are looking to you for advice, it's, yeah, put it away, play other sports, 
because they're going to come back and they're going to be better for it. Kevin Noguera, can you please unmute yourself and ask your question from earlier? Yeah, for sure. So obviously we know that people's kind of development curves and learning curves are vastly different, even if they're kind of same age, same size, things like that. So how do you kind of balance um, the engagement levels and the individual development from uh, players when you have the, the, the whole spectrum type thing and, and keeping maybe the better players who are at a, a higher point at their development point uh, level or the development uh, curve um, and keep them engaged compared to the players who are a little bit slower in that process? I, I personally think that um, it's a fallacy that your development is dependent on you know, your teammates. Like, I, I think there's ways to challenge those athletes. I think having individual development plans, meeting with them about what are your priorities and how can we help you? Um, because as you mentioned, everyone, everyone is different. Um, but, you know, how can you help an athlete take ownership over their development? What does that look like? And at the end of the day, you can only control the controllables. So uh, if you're having an issue developing, I, I don't know, it, like if, if you're saying it's on breakouts, you know, they can't make an appropriate pass because their teammates aren't in the right spot. Well, then maybe you want to challenge that particular athlete about how they can get into a better spot for, for puck acquisition and, and use their teammates, or maybe it's communication, or, or maybe it has nothing to do with, with on ice and, and it's a great opportunity for them to develop their leadership skills to help their peers you know, start to, to get up to their level. So uh, my personal uh, philosophy on that is, is, you know, finding ways to help your athletes take control and take ownership of their own development um, and how you can play a role in that. Because I think there's, there's opportunity to grow no matter what your circumstances is. Like I said, I don't, I don't know that it's, um, you know, one is dependent on, on the other. Yeah, one thing we do here is like before practice, all these girls have a little note card and they write one thing that they're focused on getting better at that day and they tack it, you know, next to their nameplate so everyone can see it too. So not only do you have to kind of reflect on what you're going to work on that day, but your, all your teammates can see it as well. And, um, and just, it, again, it kind of makes it aware you're kind of held a little bit more accountable, but like Wes said, like you have, you have ownership over what you're trying to work on. So I think, I think, you know, at the youth level, probably most ages, I think something like that would be, be helpful as well. Thank you. And, and the other piece, Kevin, is, is putting kids in, in a developmentally appropriate spot, right? So if you do have a practice and you have multiple teams on the ice or you're really young ages, whatever it may be, you know, you, what you try to do is keep kids with likability as often as possible you know let's just say you have 60 players on the ice and you could rank them one through 60 if you keep putting player one versus player 60 neither one of them is going to have fun so you, you kind of have to mold it that way think about like when when we were kids and you played uh, uh during recess who did you play with you played with your friends or you found someone that was almost as good as you maybe slightly not as good as you if you felt like when you needed to win that day or you know you wanted to challenge yourself and they, like kids gravity if they were left to their own devices they'd figure it out themselves right a lot of times we as adults screw it up more than anything and one of the sayings my boss says is, is screwed up less 
And this is one of those situations where, you know, let the kids have some ownership too and, and put themselves in the right spots. Because when we went, all went and played Sandlot baseball or pickup soccer or whatever it was as a kid, there were like varying abilities across the board, but we figured it out, right? Kids figured it out on how to make it, right? I don't know about you, but like we would play once in a while, you play pickup football and you'd have seven kids. Well, how do you play four versus three? You had a, an automatic quarterback. Who'd you make the automatic quarterback sometimes? The worst player. So he was always involved. One thing that we like to do here is like, I, especially for our junior players, we make them do journals all the time, especially with all of our skill practices. So they're, and after games, writing down positive things that they've done, things that they could have worked on, nothing negative, like things they could have worked on just to get stuff out of their heads. And whatever we worked on in practice, how can they take that into the game? And what we start to realize is that when you're looking at players, sometimes they understand exactly what you as a coach want them to do. And they understand what they need to do, but they just can't do it physically sometimes. So what I'll do is I'll create like a, an area where one kid that can do that, especially at the junior level or whatnot, he's going to teach the younger, the other guy or vice versa. One guy that's just physically, you know, talented, doesn't really have that much that's going on between the ears up there. So the other guy that, understands everything but can't do it talented so they work through each other so you, you gain that camaraderie plus you're actually putting them in that teaching role which is starting to help them understand exactly what we're going through as well behind the bench or up in the stands behind the video trying to do stuff so now you create like Wes was talking about a little bit more buying and on that stuff as well on that side side note on what Ted was just saying um, the, the science of cooperative learning putting good players with weaker players having teach it's actually fascinating. The science shows that the good player benefits even more, right? So think about this. It, it, we don't think that. We think they have to play down to someone. They actually gain all these soft skills that really accelerate um, just as long as you frame it that way. It's a deceptively powerful thing when you mix up skill levels. And we do that a lot here just with, with our crew, you know, peer-to-peer -peer learning. And you actually see, like, there are some guys who um, – are pretty hard on themselves uh, in terms of self-reflection within game. But when you have them responsible or feel responsible to, to coach and to teach as well, they kind of forget about themselves and then they just play. And we've had one guy in particular in the past, you know, he'd kind of get in his own way, but now, you know, uh, I call him coach on the bench. I say, Hey coach, get after it. And then he'll he'll get into going with his D partner or teaching this kid who's an, you know like four years younger than him, and he takes ownership, and he forgets about the turnover that he just made or or the misread or whatever it was, and then he goes out and just plays. It's it, it's amazing, and and uh, you know Ted saying that I I I see it huge huge value in peer to peer learning. That's awesome. Thanks, guys, for the insight. Connor Cataract, can you ask your question, please? Yep. Thanks, TJ. Um, so this is kind of, for me, a big thing because I've coached minor hockey, but I, I think there's still something to be gained in the team development aspect with holding players accountable kind of playing the right way and, and having positive habits and being a good teammate and 
using the bench um, as a coach to kind of hold that accountability um, and let them know that there will be players held accountable for doing things improperly, um, players rewarded for doing things properly. Um, I've just found that when players know that that's available, um, they help each other out to, to keep doing the right things. But if, if the lines are just going to keep rolling no matter what, I think some players can get a little complacent. So I'm just curious on your thoughts on kind of not, not using the bench as like a crux and holding it over a player, but just allowing to use that as a correction to, to correct some, some bad habits in players. I think it might depend on what age you're coaching as well, because Matt Deschamps is certainly going to have a different answer that I'm going to have that Ted's going to have. Right. So yeah, as you get older, that does become uh, an issue or, you know, an availability, but, you know, do we really want to beat the creativity out of a 14 or 15 year old who's trying to make a play, right? But Matty Deschamps in the Clark Cup finals and kid turns the puck over three times, he might need to, to sit a shift. So at the youngest ages, absolutely not, right? They need to play, they need to learn, right? And at the older ages, it may become a viable option. I, I always go back to a story Brendan Morrison talked about when he, when he, towards the end of his career, when he moved from the Dells over to Sweden and he turned the puck over for the first time and he's waiting for the coach to get in his ear and give him grief and sat there and nothing. And he did it again later in the game. And he's waiting for the coach to scream at him again and bench him nothing. And he met with the coach after the game and he was like, you know, what'd you think? And he's like, I was expecting for you to, to blast me for making those two turnovers. And coaches basically said to him, you're going to learn from it, right? Good and bad. And eventually you're going to learn from it. And I think that's the real key we have to take with young athletes. And yeah. Right. They're got to remember they're children. They're not fully grown mental adults. They're going to make mistakes all over the place. If we watch the national hockey league players make mistakes a lot. Our game is a game of mistakes. It's a read and react game. So we have to be kind of patient with them. And, and Ted, I see it looks like you're chomping at the bit to, to jump in on this. So go ahead. But I mean, it's like, what, what are you going to try to use the bench for? Is, you know, as Kenny's talking about there, you're talking about mistakes. You know, is that we also have to take a take that look at as a coach of being wondering, what is the player actually seeing on the ice? If he's making mistakes, why is he making them? It's there's that movie uh, point of view. I think it was where you had three different or vantage point. You had three different point of views in that movie and it kept overplaying it. And it's always the thing I look at when I look at a player, you got his point of view, you have the coach's point of view, then you got the parents or scouts. It doesn't matter. Um, and all of our point of views are different, but it's very rarely that we as coaches ever go into the player and ask them what they saw, why they made the decision that they made. I mean, they didn't make it just to make it to screw with the team it's not it wasn't their purpose there they had a purpose of why they're trying to do something now let's figure it out right and they understand they made a mistake now let's figure it out let's 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 work it and how do we get better from it now could you use the bench as, as a thing where you're having attitude problems and something else possibly right that's that's a different realm there and if you're having those problems, then obviously I think you might want to take that into the locker room and have a, a real sit down with the player and find out what the true meaning is, why they're acting the way they are. But like Kenny's saying, you know, 
USHL level, NHL level, you're going to use the bench for different reasons. You also have the, you know, the minor league teams there for other reasons there, but find out why. And if it's about a creativity or about mistakes and stuff like that, that's happened on the ice. I don't think you want to start hampering the kids. It's just like a dog learning how to pee outside. You know, you're not going to stuff his nose in the pee. I have a puppy right now and I want to, but the wife keeps uh, blocking that, but he doesn't understand why he made a mistake. It just happened because he tried to make a decision because he had to do it. So let's find out and let's work on how to make him more intelligent. And I'd say from, I'd say from our point, um, you know, we try to make those corrections, not on the bench, but in practice. I think if we're winning as coaches in practice, um, that's where the gains are, you know, and, and then the game, if you look at the game, it's just, you know, we, I like to think about it as, you know, a game is me in a suit with a stupid card, just standing there and letting the kids play, you know, yeah, we're going to have to make some in-game adjustments. I'm going to have to make some matchup decisions at some point, but for the most part, even at this level, you know, we've got to get these kids in situations. And then, you know, on a different side note, like, I spent a lot of time at Forlunda over in Sweden and, and one of the coaches was talking to me and, and we were talking about, you know, turnovers and, and talking to players, you know, when they make a mistake. And he said, we don't talk to that player. It doesn't matter how egregious it is. We don't talk to him. That player already knows that he made a mistake. He knows he doesn't need to hear from you. He knows it himself. We go and talk to the other four guys because there's pretty much one of those guys either didn't communicate, wasn't in the right lane, didn't have the right timing. There was something else going on that was a direct cause of that turnover or mistake. So they take a different look. And I always, I took that and I said, wow, that is really impactful. And, and there then, you know, that's a different way to, to, to look at those types of situations. There's a subtle subtext I'm going to throw out there. I'm hearing from everyone. And Connor said that at the beginning, right? So, you know, using the bench for punishment, you know, depends on level, depends on purpose. I think it's a slippery slope you have to think hard about. But even Connor said at the beginning, ultimately the goal is for the team to own the way one plays, right? I think Connor was saying playing simple, straightforward, appropriate hockey. You know, the best teams I've seen, the dressing room owns that message. Right. I remember one of the best teams I've dealt with, they were, it's details, details. And if someone said, hey, it's about two points tonight, their team leaders are going, no, it's about details tonight. So I think that's a common theme I keep hearing is how do you allow the team and find the team leaders to own this style of play? Because that's the most powerful message giver, right? As brilliant as we want to think we are as coaches, someone's peer, that's more powerful than us any day of the week. And if we can get that going, we have absolute gold. Then Matt can just stand on the bench looking pretty, right? Because that's the goal, Matt. Good suits. Yeah, I said look stupid. Uh, I was trying to help you out here. I'm supposed to be the nice guy. I'm the sight guy. Aren't I supposed to be nice? I can't just chirp. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, those are great answers. And I think uh, I like. I think Ted said it earlier that a lot of times the players you coach, and especially for me, it's about knowing your players and knowing their thoughts. And it's like, 
it's not the execution. I've coached double A and every time you ask them if there's a mistake made, like you don't have to talk to them. You can kind of look at them or if you ask them what they're trying to, to do, they were trying to do the right thing. A lot of times they just can't physically do it. So you just reinforce that. Yeah. Keep trying to do that. You'll get better and, and it'll happen. I think mainly my idea was just having the team know that bad attitude and cheating and not playing as a team you will be held accountable and the bench is there. But again, that comes down to the team that can, the line mates and, and teammates can correct that without you even doing anything as well. So I think mainly just having that in your back pocket, not to, not to punish or correct or anything like that, just that they understand that we are still a team and you can't just do whatever you want out there that um, you should be looking out for your teammates and that uh, the bench is still there. This point has been brought up a lot tonight about communication because I, I agree with you, Connor, but it's still a delicate balance about communicating, not just with that individual, but with the team about, about exactly why. Because if you sit someone down because they're being selfish, their attitude is bad, but it happens right after they toe-dragged at the blue line and turned the puck over and that was your last straw that kid's going to go home and mom and dad are going to say, why'd you get benched? And you say, because I try to toe drag at the blue line when that's, that's not what your intention was. And the team may perceive it the same way. So I think that's where, you know, clear, concise communication is really important. Lars Bjorn, can you ask your question, please? Sure. Thank you. Um, one, thank everybody for being on this call. Great experience. Uh, my question was working with a team that lacked some confidence earlier in the year. It felt like we almost had to teach them how to win over the course of the season. Is that, I don't know, accurate? Is that, is that a thing? Have, has anybody experienced that before? I'll, I'll go first because I, I, I've had a healthy debate about this with other coaches before. I think TJ was there. Just because you won before doesn't mean that you've won again. Every game is different. I, I think, you know, like, are there, um, are there certain things that are common threads on winning teams? Yes. But that being said, you know, like, you probably played another sport and won there. And the things that, are, are healthy in a team environment that lead to winning, like good communication, um, like honesty, you know, like, um, you know, looking at problems and finding solutions, you know, th those are applicable lessons, not just in hockey. So I think looking at it from a broader scope, maybe put your athletes in positions to win, not in a game directly, you know, it could be keeping score and, and small area games in practice, but it could just be playing uh, handball or playing, you know, uh, some sort of team building game um, off the ice. Where like there's there's winning and losing. I mean, like I think the the lessons you learn about how to win aren't in the execution of X's and O's. It's 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 in all the other things that are you know part of a healthy winning team. So I would say. You know, not knowing how to win is—you need to really dissect why you're not winning, 
And uh, I don't think it's not knowing how to, because we at some point, there's not a single person on the earth who's who's never won anything at any time. You know, you, you might've won a game of rock, paper, scissors. Someone's won somewhere. So um, I think just doing things, keeping score and maybe not just on the ice. And I think the one thing too, just like instilling the mindset for kids or any age really, but like loving to compete regardless of the outcome, like having you're, you know, any defenseman want to go against the top forward on your team, even though they might get exposed, but because they just love to compete and they want to go against the best to get better. So I think kind of like that mindset too, it's not really about the, the winning, but just getting excited for those competitions, whether it's a small area game or, um, you know, a game in a tournament or anything like that, just that, that, uh, that mindset throughout the, the entire team to, to get excited for those moments. Both really good insights, Wes and Alyssa, and like like Wes, you talked about win, winning's hard, right? For, especially in a team sport. But when you break it down to individuals, right? Kids are inherently competitive. I'm still yet to meet the eight year old that I line two of them up and say race to the stop sign. I've still yet to meet the eight year old who says, "Gee, I hope I finish second. Kids want to win, right? But it's if, if we were all on the same team, right, I'm dependent on everyone on this call to help win. So what Wes said was exactly right. It's, it's not just learning how to win. It's, 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 a, it's a, so much of a bigger piece than that. For me, it's about the details. A lot, a lot of the difference between winning and losing is those little details and almost inspiring the diligence through the competition like Kenny was talking about and keeping score on even little things like, okay, who can get to the stop sign first or who can get dressed faster. Cool. Thank you all very much. Yeah. I was approaching it more from building the confidence and learning the effort that it takes, not coming down after, you know, the other team scores, but sticking it out, getting it through. Um, yeah. All great answers. Thank you very much. I would like to just add to that a thought. It might be devil's advocate a little bit. And it, and it certainly might change depending on the level you're at. And I'll answer the question with a question to Jordy Williamson, who played at Curry for me. And over four years, our team won more games every year he was there. And, and, I, and I'm curious to know his perception on this as to did we learn to win? Was there a belief factor? And what was that dynamic like in terms of confidence and from the from the team morale or team standpoint? Well, thanks for putting me on the spot, uh, TJ. Um, I guess it was pretty interesting just to see my like transition over the years. Um, and I definitely, the point you, you just said about uh, the belief factor, that was huge. Um, I know in my second year, we had a fairly young team and we didn't really have that belief factor yet um, until we started to get a little traction and started winning some games kind of later on in the season. And, and you could see that there was a shift kind of within the room that everyone kind of realized, hey, like we are, we are pretty good. And um, we kind of almost had a narrative like, oh, we're young, so it's okay to have like a, a bad year or whatever. But as we started to win more, you could feel the mind, like the mindset shift within the room to, 
oh, we're a young team to, oh, like we're, we're winning games and, and we're getting momentum and, and kind of, I guess how you're saying that belief that you can win and can be successful. Thanks, Jordy. Thank you. We're getting awfully close to two hours here. Does anybody else have any final thoughts or any other questions they'd like to get off their chest? If anybody has a way of getting coffee sent to Yaroslava, Russia, immediately, because uh, Ted's going to take his afternoon nap at about 10 a.m. today. So, um, but uh, no, thank you to everyone. Thank you to our panelists and for everybody who jumped on and kudos to all of you that have, have hung in the distance here. I had a great time. I really appreciate everybody's time. And uh, uh, hopefully you took away what uh, you came here for and um, wish everybody great health and success here moving forward. Thank you.